What is up? Welcome back to Where Are All My Friends. It is another week and it is another great episode. This week, we sit down with Jameson Roper, who manages a band called The Band Camino. And I've been a big fan of that band for a while now, but as soon as I found out about Jameson and what he was doing with them, I had this feeling. And it was a feeling of, fuck, I need to step it up. Because he is a manager that views things a little bit differently from many that I've met, and he's the exact kind of person that I want on this podcast. I love telling the stories of anybody, any side of music, and even a little bit past it, but the common denominator is I want people that are doing something exceptional. I want somebody that inspires me and would inspire others, and that's exactly what I feel like he's doing. So sitting down with him, telling his story, I mean, he had a very successful business in real estate before managing this band. He had a career in music before that, and all of the pieces and everything that I had heard, I kind of knew little bits of it, and I really wanted to find out why he made this move, why he works with this band, and the way he thinks, and the way that he puts these things together, because this band has had so much success so quickly, and I knew that there was something special about him. We get into it, he gives a ton of great advice, his whole story, and then at the back end of the episode, a lot of very good advice for both artists who want to get the attention like Band Camino, and also managers who want to follow a similar path as him. So it's exactly what I want to do with this podcast. Couldn't have been happier with this episode. I really think you're going to like it. The other thing that I always say is just if you do like the episode, please share it on social media. It's been the best way for it to grow. It helps me get new guests. It helps me hear from audience. Like I want to know who you guys want to hear from. I want to know what you like, what you don't like. I love hearing your feedback. So if you have a favorite part of this episode, take a little clip of it, share it on Insta Story, whatever. I love hearing from you. I love seeing it get shared. That's really it. Hope you enjoy the episode. Be back next week with another one. Here we are, another week of Where Are All My Friends, and I am sitting down with Jameson Roper. He is, I said that right, yes? Yes, you did. All right. Just like the whiskey. <laughs> oh, yeah. He is a manager that I really respect, and this is a cool one because you're here on tour right now with Band Camino, yep. and you took the time out of today, and why not? Sit down, rip a pod. I'm excited. So the first thing I had like a nice to do, coffee. You oh made, yeah, we got to do breakfast together. You made me a sippy rippy. I've a been sippy told. rippy Very from good. Andrew's Caffeine Corner. That's special. <laughs> I only do that for my friends. But yeah, so that was awesome. That was really yeah. good. Yeah, it was good. The eggs. Did you like the eggs? Eggs were great. Oh. That was a Adam. Hit. Adam is great with eggs. I'm really the, the breakfast lately has been very special. We're so. already into the weeds about stuff that's not pertaining to the podcast. I love this, and that'll happen. And I like that because people listening are like, they're just like us. They eat eggs and drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no. So anybody that doesn't know you, uh, which briefly, is probably everybody. <laughs> Well, it's funny, right? Like managers are oftentimes behind the scenes and responsible for so much that we don't realize. So I'm so excited to sure. sit down with those kinds of people. So anybody who doesn't know you, explain who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Jameson Roper. I am, we always say I'm a unicorn. I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. It's like pretty rare that somebody is born and raised there. Oh, yeah. And uh, I manage the Bank Camino. Um, and that's... That's about as long of an elevator pitch as we need for the the intents and purposes of this podcast. Okay, cool. Yeah. And we'll get into it. Yeah. Anybody that doesn't know Band Camino, you need to listen to them, but they're on a really cool path right now and things are getting really fucking good for them. Yeah. Um, and I know that you have a cool story before that, so let's crack in. Um, 
what I like to do is I like to go back to the early days of where you kind of found music or what you're passionate about. So wherever that falls in your life, take me to that point. So it all really starts with my parents. Okay. Uh, My mom and dad met at a really small Christian college in Searcy, Arkansas called Harding University. And they were both commercial music majors. Oh, wow. And they realized like when they were freshmen in college, like we, you know, we got to go somewhere not in Searcy, Arkansas. Uh, so they moved to Nashville and my mom was a very good pianist. Um, very schooled. My dad was a voice major, also played guitar. So they moved to Nashville in, I think it was 79 or 80. Obviously I wasn't around yet. (laughs) And, um, they had been doing music in Texas before that, but they moved to Nashville in 79 or 80. I believe it was 79. And uh, my mom was the band leader for uh, a woman named Shelly West, who was a big crossover country to pop artist. And my dad was a TM. And so that's kind of interesting how that happened. So like super musical family. Yeah. And so they got signed to RCA Records as a duo. And then they got dropped before the record ever came out. No, your parents did? Yep. So they got dropped. So my dad got into the car business. My mom stayed in music and was a session player. And a songwriter for Grand Music, which would go on to get acquired by Sony ATV. Um, so they kind of like always fostered my love for music. So when I was really young, I was attracted to music, particularly drums. Um, you know, it's interesting when you think about patterns. When I was like three and four years old, of course, I don't remember this. But my mom said I was fascinated with the like the meter of songs. Mm-hmm. So like I would lay toys out that were kind of like in, like I would, like, let's just take like a, a ball, right? Yeah. I would take like a green ball and I'd put it where I was hearing a kick. And then I would put like a different color where I thought I was hearing a snare or whatever. Oh, you'd visualize it. Yeah. So I was, it was something that was really kind of just in me from very young age. And my parents thankfully fostered that they didn't, they didn't try to squelch it, which was really cool of them. Um, so I would go on and, got pretty serious about playing drums. When I was 11 years old, I met my best friend, who's still my best friend to this day, Mitchell Tenpenny, who's gone on to have a lot of success as a country artist. He just had his first number one song. Oh, shit. Yep. And uh, Mitchell and I met in sixth grade and kind of pushed each other to become as good as we could possibly be. So I started playing a lot of, I uh, started recording a lot and doing a lot of sessions and playing with as many people as I could. You said sixth grade? Yeah. Wow. So by the time I was 14, 15, I was a professional working musician. Uh, at this point, I also was kind of a, this was before Pro Tools was accessible for everybody. Got it. This was when it was very not user friendly. It still sucks. If Avid's listening, your software's giant piece of shit um but it it, back then it was really really tough yeah and being able to actually multi-track input a lot of different like for me as a drummer if i wanted to multi-track 12 inputs it was the the barrier to entry was significantly higher then than it is now what like era like year ish this would have been 2004 2005 okay so like computers are very usable but again it's not the way it is now where you can just right. download a daw and be like here we go exactly yeah it was it was significantly more difficult but so Mitchell and I were like we have to we have to figure this out yeah uh 
Mitchell's grandmother. Can I was, ask you a question there? Sure. What was it in your guys's heads that made you say we have to figure this out and not just we have to find a studio where somebody can help us? So I think the biggest. It's so interesting that you asked that question because I can actually tell you exactly what it was. Do you remember the Thrice record, Artist in the Ambulance? Dude, yeah. So that came out when we were in seventh grade. Okay. So we were 12. And I remember listening to Hoods on Peregrine, which was, I think, number seven on that record, if I'm remembering right. And the way that those toms sounded, which were not the all-time greatest toms in the world, but at that point, as a 12-year-old, I was like, whoa, this is so crazy. Because I grew up in Nashville where the drums just sounded very different. And I remember listening to that, and I remember researching... Brian McTernan, who produced that record, and why everything sounded the way it did. Yeah. And as a 12, 13-year-old, I was like, I got to find a way to make records that sound like this. Holy shit. And so Mitchell had that same thing. And there was a couple other of our friends back home that were kind of in the same world. But me and Mitchell were really the ones that were like, we, we've got to figure out how to make records that sound like this. Wow. And so Mitchell's grandmother was the president of Sony ATV Tree, uh, Donna Hilly, um, in Nashville. And so she loved that. And then my parents loved that we were in music. So it was awesome because we had this kind of like family structure around us that, that most people are never able to have. And yeah. we, we thankfully, uh, at least I knew it from the very beginning because I had a few friends growing up that, that weren't as fortunate with their pa parents supporting them. That's, I mean, that's such an interesting thing, right? So many musicians you talk to dealt with like the denial or the non-support of their families, yeah. right? Because it's not a traditional career. And it's, it's heartbreaking super risky. to see too. So like when you have to go against your family and like your team just to like follow your passion, that sucks. Yeah. So it's more rare, strangely, to hear your story where your parents are like, let's go. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to get too deep in the mud on this. I'm, no, I'm this to, is important though. Yeah, like, I so, feel like these are super formative. Yeah. I love to hear it. So we started making a lot of records like that and we would, like I remember we bought, uh, oh shit, I don't remember the model. I think it was DBX 166XL compressors. I don't remember what they were, but there were these like little stereo uh, two channel uh, compressors and we were able to find them at like a Nashville used music for like 150 bucks. It was like some old shitty studio went into business yeah. and we like cut grass. Our friend's dad owned a printing company. We yes. like packed paper and we went and bought all these compressors and we were like, all right, we didn't know what the hell a compressor did at that point, but we were like, we're going to figure this out because we're going to make drums that sound like hoods on Peregrine and, we're, and right. we really want everything to smack you really this hard. An analog, this is a real compressor, a physical yeah, compressor. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I remember we bought like, dude, we probably bought 16 channels of these DBX compressors. Nobody in their right mind would use the same compressor 16 channels worth. But, you know, 12-year-old Jameson and Mitchell, we were like, we're going to figure this out. So anyway, um, we were just trying to kind of figure that out. We would re-record songs that we liked the way they sounded and try to emulate exactly oh, what they smart. did. And yeah. Anyway, so moving on, we both were kind of like, all right, we're going to do music forever. Mitchell continued to do so. When I was in uh, senior year of high school, I was like, I, I always say it was the biggest blessing, honestly, but I had already gotten jaded by the music business oh, when I was 15. So early. Yeah. So like, you know, I, there's a, there's a songwriter in Nashville named Kent Blazy. And if you Google Kent, uh, he wrote a lot of Garth Brooks songs. He, he's a prolific writer. He wrote a lot with my mom. Kent one day said to me, is there, 
is so music makes you 100% happy? And I said, yeah. And he said, is there anything that makes you 50% happy? And I was like, yeah. He said, cool, do any of those. He's like, the only reason that you should do music is if it's the only thing that brings you happiness, because this business sucks and it's going to hurt you. Wow. And at the time when he told me that, I was like, man, that's, I don't really love to hear that as a kid, but he was right. And so I, by the time I was 18, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I got out. I was like, I don't want to do music. I don't want to see it. I don't want to touch it. That's it. And it was very much like a, uh, not really ripped the bandaid off. Cause I didn't even make that big of a deal about it. It just kind of dissolved. And it was kind of like it had never happened in a really weird way. So I still play drums every day. I still play my guitars every day, but I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I went to college. Um, you know, I'm getting out of college at this point. This was in 2012 and I get a call one day. I was about to start law school and I get a call one day from Jimmy Deegan, who was in this band called Every Avenue. I know Jimmy. Yeah. He's fucking awesome. Love him. So Holy Jim- shit. And he was living in Nashville at the time? Yep. So okay. Jimmy and I had just become friends and he called me and he's like, hey, what are you doing next month? And I was like, I'm in school. Why? And he's like, ah, oh, well... You want to go to like Japan? We got a bunch of sold out shows in Japan. We're supposed to do the Philippines, whatever. I was for like, every avenue. Yeah, and oh, it was like a, cool. it was like a it was like a reunion thing for them. I said sure. So I literally dropped out of school on the plane. I bought Wi Fi. I like sent an email. I was like, "Hey, I'm done with this." And truthfully, that shows you my conviction level of staying in school. I just really didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, so I did that tour, and I just basically. Didn't really know what was going to happen. I was just like, whatever. I'm not going to go to law school. Whatever. Screw it. Yeah. Did that tour. Came back after two weeks. And I was like, well, what do I do now? And you're playing drums for them? Yeah. It was just, it was literally like five shows. So was Dennis in Saves the Day by then? Dennis, no. So Dennis basically just didn't do that tour. He had some stuff at home. And he was just like, I can't do it. And they already had the shows sold. Okay. So I went and did it. Uh, Philippines had like a hurricane. One of those typhoons that, you know, you hear about. Yeah. And, and it never really affects your life. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's other than news, like on the it's news. Not real. Yeah, but then it, it we weren't able to do the Philippines. Anyway, so I got back and I got my real estate license. Whoa. So I got into real estate. Uh, I kind of had a, a mentor, a guy named Jim Caden, who's, you know, when I met Jim, I was 20, 24. Jim was 68. Whoa. Or 69, and we became like best friends. Wow. Jim and I did a few commercial deals together, and uh, then one day he kind of pulled me aside, and he's like, why don't you... Because in, in the commercial space, nobody really cares who your agency is. That doesn't exist in commercial. It exists in residential. Like, cool, I'm with Keller Williams, I'm with whoever. Commercial, it's much more about the deal. It's much more about the nuts and bolts. The deals are a lot bigger. They take a lot longer. They're a lot bigger pain in the ass. There's a lot more hands in the pot. I hate commercial deals. <laughs> and... uh Jim one day was like, do you want to keep doing commercial stuff? And I was like, no, I honestly, I like the human interaction of doing this. Yeah. He's like, well, you should just start a company. And I was like, I can't do that. And he's like, I'll give you free office space. He's like, just do it. Make me a partner. Not only free office space, but you're associated with a respected yeah. agent. Well, and the thing was, he gave me the lion's share of the company. He's like, just give, he's like, make me a partner or whatever. Just go do it. I was like, wow. okay. What shots to that dude? Damn. Yeah. Well, and that's honestly the, the kind of confidence that he showed in me is, is, something that I have tried to impart onto everybody that I possibly can, because the truth was there was no difference in me doing that for another company or starting my own. It was literally just him 
somebody that I thought had enough clout to bestow this upon me, just saying, no, 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 you can do it. Cause like your parents, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever is like, yeah, of course you can do it. But like, it doesn't really hold as much value until somebody that you really respect in that world says you can do it. Then you're like, okay, yeah, he's right. So he was kind of like the first mentor, like the first person that was like showing you confidence in a professional. Other than my dad. Yeah. I mean, my dad was a huge part of my upbringing, but my dad was in the car business at this point. And Um, that was just never an interest to you. uh, You know, I wouldn't say it was never an interest, but it wasn't. It was never, it never raised its hand and was like, this is what you need to do. I was like, sure. Hey, whatever. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, so yeah. I start the real estate company. It's great. But most of my business revolved around music. And I know that that's really odd. But so I would, and I'm kind of giving away some of the, the secrets out of my playbook because I still have the real estate firm. Uh, but so my whole friend base and everything in Nashville was still songwriters, publishers, artists. Uh, people in the Nashville music business. Of course, because that's your friends. That's who right. you grew up hanging out with. That's who you're naturally going to be exactly. like-minded peers. So those yeah. are my best friends. So a lot of publishers, and the, the writing community, it's also very important to note, the writing community in Nashville is remarkably different than the one in LA. Mm. In Nashville, it really is like, the there's three restaurants mm-hmm. in Nashville that we always call the high school cafeteria. Because if you go there, you can go there by yourself and you will see 15 people. And... It's such a community as to where LA is, it's, it's a location and people go there and write, Yeah, but it, it's just, it, it's not the same. Yeah. And anybody that spent time in both cities can, can tell you that. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, LA has that, um, appeal or it feels like the place where music is happening and there is a lot of it. But there's so much of it that there's so many little sectors and all that. Right. And you go to Nashville and it does feel much more like everybody knows everybody and it's like almost one community. Yes. And I think it's also a a big part of it is in Nashville, if you want to do three rides a day, you can. Mm. Like most rides in Nashville start from 11. And then if you want to do a double, then you have another one that starts at four. Yeah. But sometimes people will do a morning session and they'll start at eight. Wow. In LA, because your traffic is such a clusterfuck, I mean- doing one is a stretch because you're like, cool, I got to drive an hour. Right. And then, oh, the studio's in Burbank. Okay, add another hour. You know, right. it's it's just like... That's interesting. It's, and so anyway, back to where, <laughs> where I was. Um, this will happen on the podcast. We get excited. I know, There's a I lot know, to I know. talk about. You're right. It yeah. is. It's far. I'm interested. It's it's bad news. <laughs> yeah. But so in Nashville, a lot, of, a lot of publishers do these things called retreats where they'll take a okay. group of writers that they think is going to be really fertile yeah. together. And they're like, all right, cool. Let's go and we'll shake them up into a cup and we'll see what comes out. Cool. So I had this idea. There was a lot of writers in Nashville that were like, Hey, you know, I want to write with so-and-so from LA or whatever. And Oh, cool. That's actually my client. He's, he's a real estate client. And so I had this idea. I was like, I'm going to do my own retreats. So I started doing my own songwriter retreats. And the only way that you got invited is is if you either did business with me directly or you referred me business. So what this did is it opened it up to where all you had to do was send me a client. So people were like, and I started getting texts. Like I sent these gnarly invitations out and these different writers were like, dude, what the hell? Like, why didn't I get invited? And I was like, dude, you know the rules. And they'd be like, I can't afford a house yet. I'd be like, okay, it's fine. It's it's no big deal. Like you just can't go. And they'd be like, dude, well, that's fucked up. I can't afford a house. I'd be like, set up a lunch with me and your publisher. And it was crazy because it started just, I mean, blowing up. And so I ended up getting a lot of deals out of it that way. 
do you, okay, where did that come from though? Cause that's brilliant, right? Like that's a non, that's a very unique idea that not everybody thinks about. So does that come from like your real estate mentor kind of buddy or like, is honestly, that just your hustle? Like what is uh, that? So here's the thing. When I got into real estate, the number one thing I refused to do was be a realtor. Got it. Like what I mean by that, here's my Facebook page. Let me annoy the shit out of you. Here's a postcard mailer. Hey, here's me walking around a house. Don't you want to do that? Like, no, I I said from the beginning, like if I get into this, I'm not going to do that. So for me, I just very, very pointedly from the beginning, I was like, if I do this, it's going to be a word of mouth thing. I'm never going to annoy people. I'm never going to put it into a CRM. Uh, which is like the, an email campaign thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where you was like, I'm just, keep up like, with clients. Yeah, like the shit that when people do it to me, I'm like, this person's dead to me. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Like I just wasn't. And so, for, but that the thing is that sets it up to be much more difficult. Because the truth is, anybody listening to this, if you have a high tolerance for pain, because it does take you about eight months to close your first deal for most people. If you have a high tolerance for pain, real estate's a great business. Mm. Um, if, you're, if you want to do all that. The way I did it is significantly harder. Mm. Um, if I were doing it over again, I don't think I would do it differently, but I would think about it Mm. because if you do the, the ads and you quote, put yourself out there, uh, you definitely do get traction faster, but I didn't want to do that. And I was very stubborn and I was very convicted. And so I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to figure out a way around it. So it was that chain. (laughs) Yeah. So started doing that and I knew I would get back into music at some point. I just didn't know when. Got it. So, uh, and by that time, like, are you living off of real estate pretty well? Like, is yeah. it, it's comfortable enough yeah. where you can be an adult and pay for yes. things? And But that was, that kind of is another thing about the reason I ended up with Ban Camino is, you know, um, I feel like nowadays, especially in 2019, it's so taboo to talk about money, to talk about success because we've created all these divides. Uh, for the sake of this argument, I'm, I don't, I'm going to throw all that out the window. I was, I was making a significant amount of money. Yeah. And I remember one day I was holding a check that was very large. And I remember just like sitting in my kitchen and I was like, I feel nothing like, cause you continually move the goalposts. And like, there's two ways you can look at that. Like, okay, you're never happy. But then also, you know, they're the two countries that are the most unhappy countries in the world. Um, I don't remember where I, I wrote a paper on this in college. So this has probably changed. This information is probably outdated, but I wrote this paper. The two countries that are the least satisfied of first world countries are U S and Japan. And if I were to ask you which two countries have marked the upward surge of mankind, you would probably say U S and Japan. Yeah. So I think moving the goalposts can be healthy and it can also be really detrimental depending on the individual person and the way that you perceive things. Totally. But for me, I always move the goalposts. Right. So I was like, okay, if I make this, then I've made it. Yeah. But then you get there and you're like, oh, well, no, no, no. Right. I don't know. It's further down the line. So I remember one day I was sitting in my kitchen and I was like, this is fucking miserable. Like, I mean, not that I d- didn't like my job. It's just like I, I had kind of focused on the wrong thing. And this is when I was like, I'll probably get back into music. Like holding that check. And yeah. And you realized I, that you didn't feel Well, much. like, do you, um, so Martin Johnson mm-hmm. was a lead singer of Band Called Boys Like Girls. Yeah. And Martin went on to have huge success as a writer and now yeah, he's doing the night game yeah. and martin uh, i remember calling marty and i was because martin and i had talked about this and i was like dude i'm holding this check for x and i was like i kind of feel nothing and martin if anybody knows martin he's a very uh eccentric and very uh expressive speaker 
And do you know Martin? I don't, but I love hearing about this because oh, I've dude. heard Mar- stories. Martin's about him. like, I'm on the phone and I can hear him shouting. And he's like, he's like, yeah, what do you do now? Buy a bigger house for more shit. What do you do? Then you get a fucking storage unit to hold all your shit. You buy a watch, you buy a car. It's pointless. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, fine, 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 fine. And I remember once, you, and once Martin starts going, you can't shut him up. So you just have to let him go. And he's just like, ripping. Right, yeah. And I was like, okay, thank you. And I hung up and I was like, I remember talking to my wife and I was like, I gotta figure this out. Like, I, I just don't know what I'm gonna do. And what were, what are her thoughts? Because like, I'm she, sure she wants you to be happy, but at the same time, like money is an important part of any life. Especially yeah. Now. Well, and, and also Devin, my wife, um, she was working at this point for a company out of Silicon Valley called Barracuda Networks and she was flying a lot and she hated her job. And so from it, it, that was always kind of interesting to get her perspective too, because she was like, I, you know, your job seems great, but even somebody as close to you as your spouse, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't perceive something for somebody the way that you think it should be perceived. Like totally. they have to experience it. So anyway, um, my house at this point had was a revolving door when, when all these writers would get done writing at like three o'clock because they are all my best friends. Yeah. They would call me because since I worked from home, I never went into my office. Got it. They would all just come over to my house and my back porch was basically, it's designed to be a listening room. So like I can close the porch in and I can check mixes or whatever. So I just listened back there. I listen to music all day and smoke cigars. So whenever these writers get done, these degenerates that are finished at three, they're like, <laughs> Hey, I'm going to come over. One day Seth Ennis called me who is an artist on the Sony records in Nashville, fabulous writer. Uh, Seth calls him one day and he's like, dude, I just had an exhausting write. Can I come over? Like, I was like, sure. So he comes over and he plays me. He's like, dude, check this out. I found this band. I think they're cool. He plays me My Thoughts on You by Van Camino. And I was like, this is cool. And But it still wasn't really, uh, that wasn't the song that really did it for me. Yeah. Um, no disrespect to bands that are in that lane, but... I'm a huge believer that the synth pop uh, band thing, yeah, a la insert the two bands that we're both probably thinking of right now that I'm not going to say. <laughs> um, that lane. I like was, the way you talk. I like the way like you paint this picture and you can keep it. Yeah, not offensive. Yeah. And <laughs> I love that. but that that lane five years ago was really exciting, and now there's been so many people that have tried to leech onto it that that lane is kind of like the four or five at five o'clock. <laughs> And so anyway, I remember Seth was like cycling through the songs and I heard what I want. And I was like, now this is compelling. This is two lead singers. This is very interesting. This is, this is reminds me of that thrice record in a way. Interesting. It reminded me of something that I really liked, but the vocal was the most compelling thing for me. Um, so anyway, I sent him a Facebook message. I was like, yo, like if you guys are ever touring, you need a place to crash. We're going to stay with me and my wife. I've made that offer to a lot of bands. Yeah, yeah. Where, where were they living? Uh, I didn't even know. Okay. So then I get a message three months later and he's like, hey, man, this is Jeff. Uh, I don't really check this very often. Um, we don't really tour much. But if you ever come to Memphis, you should come see us. My wife's family is from Memphis. And, and that's I was like, it's like two hours away from Nashville. Yeah, right? it's like three. And I okay. was like, I was like, cool. So I was like, where are you guys playing? And he's like, well, we're actually playing Newbies tomorrow. Newbies, anybody listening to this from Memphis knows Newbies, but if you're not, you don't know it because it is a hole in the wall. It's not a music venue. It's like a restaurant for like beer and wings for college students. Incredible. So I called Devin and I was like, yeah, we're going to see your parents tomorrow. She's like, all right, cool. So we went and they were doing a four hour set of covers. What the fuck? Yeah. 
And I was like, what is going on? What, just to like get paid a hundred bucks or something? Like what? Yeah. So I'm watching them play at Newbies and they're playing for four hours and they take intermission and Graham, the bass player comes over to me and he's like, Hey man. So like Jeff said, like you're from Nashville, like that's really cool. You know, how'd you find out about our band, whatever. And at this point I had had a couple of tough guy sodas and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, man, why the hell are you doing this? And he's like, what? I was like, your band is too good for this. Why are you doing this shit? And I remember it kind of bummed Graham out. He was like, oh, I mean, uh, yeah, like that's know. a pretty uh, honest statement for a stranger to make to you. Yeah. And I was just like, dude, why are you doing this shit? I was like, this is so dumb. Yeah. And I was like, look, you guys should come to Nashville and just hang out for a weekend. Uh, and I had some people in mind that I wanted them to meet. So anyway, fast forward a few months, I'm, I'm working with them. They asked me to manage them in like October-ish. They're like, hey, would you be open to this? And I was like, no, I've got enough <laughs> shit going on. Like, I want to help your band. I think you're awesome, but no. So, and like the picture that I'm kind of <laughs> seeing is like you're successful enough in your own lane of doing real estate. You have all your music friends anyway, and you believe in this band. So why not throw, connect them with pieces and sure. just be that supportive friend and be like, yeah, cool. That I was it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, for me, it was really not a self-serving thing at all. I was like, I think your band's great. I think you should not be doing this. Um, you know, whatever. So in October, they were like, hey, let's like kind of think about this. And I just was like, no, 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 no. So then this is where the story gets a little bit weird. Um, November 7th of 2017, my mother-in-law was murdered in her own house. What the fuck? Yeah. So she lived in Memphis. And anybody that's ever been to Memphis knows it's a borderline war zone. And so she... Basically was loading her groceries in and some dude was just driving by, walked into the house to uh, do whatever, and he shot and killed her. What the actual fuck? Yeah. So when that happened, that really threw everybody for a loop. And and I'm an only child and so is my wife. So like for her, her dad was the type of guy, is the type of guy who like Susan did everything for him. So it was like really tough picking up the pieces, going through a homicide investigation is really brutal. It's like, you know, earlier we were talking about how you broke your femur. Like that's the type of thing you read about, but it doesn't happen to you. Yeah. This was like the same thing. It's like, dude, this is a law and order thing. Like this, this isn't real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on the news. That's on TV. People right. talk about that. That's not real. So, so we, get, they, you know, the cops catch a guy like two weeks later. Um, once you've kind of gone through something like this and talked about it enough, you get kind of dispassionate. So it's like, it's kind of weird when I hear myself talking about it, like pretty free i'm kind of fucked up about this i'm like oh my god yeah it's 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 wild man and it's but you know it's one of those things like once it happens to you everything kind of goes by really quick and funny enough it's it's kind of the catalyst for why i'm here so that happens we're in memphis for like three or four weeks uh basically until thanksgiving and then we came back and i'm talking more with the guys at this point aj perdomo lead singer of a band called the dangerous summer calls me and he's like Yo, I need like, are you in Nashville? You want to hang out? I was like, what are you doing? He's like, we're getting ready for a tour. I was like, do you have support for it? He's like, yeah. He's like, we got this band called Microwave. I was like, you want to do a first to three? And he's like, I don't know, probably not. And I was like, check this out. So I sent him what I want, and AJ like called me back, and he's like, this band is awesome. And so I called the Camino guys. I'm like, yo, like, at this point, I'm still picking up the pieces of everything that you are not in the headspace to be doing any kind of management shit. Yeah. But I was just like, look, Hey, you guys should do this tour. You've never done a national tour. You've never done a real tour. Like they had self booked shows and done a good job doing it. Um, you know, they had done like 150 shows or something just 
DIYing it. Isn't that like a similar story to the Beatles where they played for fucking ever just doing covers in their hometown before? <laughs> like they gotten I so I love the parallel good. you're trying to draw. Like, Yo, what's up? Next yeah. Beatles. But like, it, I believe there's something there and I could be totally wrong. No, yeah. The same thing like this idiot. But I'm that's an interesting thing for a band to have played so much before touring where they're just great by the time they tour. They, you know, and it had taken several different forms because it started out as a country band, funny enough. Really? Yeah, it was the Jeffrey Jordan band and it was like a country thing and then one day in soundcheck they just kind of veered off and that was it. But anyway, so uh, I called the guys and I'm like, hey, I think I got you on your first tour if you want to do it. I think they got 100 Hundred and fifty dollars a night, a hundred dollars a night. Like, Sounds right. Yeah, it's and the I, typical and I was fuck just, yourself one of yep. blank spot. And uh, but it was a great tour for them. Yeah. Uh, well, at this point, they had said yes. So then, like around Christmas time, they called me and they were like, "Hey, seriously, like people are coming out of the woodwork. They want to manage us. Like we want you to do this." And I was like, "I don't know." And so then around Christmas time, we were with uh, my father in law, who had just lost his wife, and. We were watching a basketball game, and and they they lived in downtown Memphis, and they're huge Grizzlies fans. And we were watching a Grizzlies Celtics game, and it there was like one of those shots when they come back from commercial, and it's like a panning cityscape. Mm -hmm. And I remember Scott said to me, he's like, "Oh man, I wish that I'd gotten to take Susan to Boston." And I'm like, "Why didn't you just go to Boston?" He's like, "Well, it never fit into like our schedule because because they were both very regimented at their jobs and like saving and like that type of person." Yeah. And he's like, "It never fit our plan." And I'm like, "Yeah." And then she gets killed. Like, go like why don't you just fucking go to Boston? It's like two hundred dollars. Fuck, dude. And I remember when I had that conversation with him, I was like, "Why am I not managing this band? Because it doesn't make me as much money because." you know, the challenges are there because dealing with a band is hell. Like, you know, what, like, why am I not doing it? And so I remember I called them on new year's Eve and I was like, do you guys want to do this? And they were about to go to a party. They were, they had already been drinking and I FaceTimed them and I was like, do you guys really want to do this? Like seriously? And they said, yep. So I signed them January 1st of 2018. And so that was, uh, what is it? A year and a half, year and nine months, 10 months ago. Yeah. And so, did the Dangerous Summer Tour. Then I called in a favor with Martin. Did the Night Game Tour. Then we spent that summer just working on music. Their first co-write ever was with Seth Innes, the guy that showed me the band. I set him up with Seth and then Jordan Schmidt, who now produces all the band. So you, your network was just impeccable already. Like you were, you it worked were geared for this up it worked to manage for this, band. this band. Yeah. And so, so I, you know, I set up a write and it was... Seth and Jordan and then Jeff and Spencer and the two lead singers. And that was the first co-write they ever did was, was Daphne Blue. Fuck. Yeah. And then like a week later, they If did, anybody's listening that doesn't know the band, go listen to Daphne Blue yeah. right now and you'll understand why that's so fucking cool. Yeah. And so then like the, the, I'm trying to think. See-through was written very early on. Wow. Um, there was a lot of those. And so we did the Danger Summer Night Game Tour in like between January and April. Yep. Then we took the summer to write and stuff. Then in the fall, uh, I threw a couple of my friends and then the fact that he was CAA, we got him on the Ben Rector tour, which was like two to 5,000 cap rooms. Damn. And then that was, so that was our third tour ever. And then this spring we did their first ever headline tour, which was their fourth tour ever. And that all fully sold out. And now we're on their fifth tour ever, which is their second headliner. And which it's, is it's like 1,000 to 2,000 cap rooms. And aggressively sold out. Uh, everything sold out except Minneapolis. 
God damn it, Minneapolis. Minneapolis was 100 away. God damn uh, it. Yeah, I know. That was the one where we were like, ah, but it's all good. Okay, we have to rewind a second because- Yeah, sorry. That was a very long No, but story. that's good. That's good because you told the whole piece and now I can pick apart. So- Pick me apart. One thing that I want to go back to, you were, you were talking about holding that check. Mm-hmm. And I draw a parallel and I think a lot of people can relate to this, but it's not until- I always look at life as like you have survival and then happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that for so long, we chase the idea of survival. And there's this picture painted of what survival is. And it's owning this nice house, these nice things, whatever. And for so long, you chase survival. Then you get there and you realize like, I'm surviving. I can pay for all my things, whatever. If you're in the US, you survive. Right, right. And for so long, it's almost like this lie that you're not surviving, whatever. But then you have to separate survival and happiness. And it sounds like you're sitting there and like it's clear you're surviving. You have the money, but you're not happy. And there's not that sense of purpose. And I really admire like anybody that finds that and pivots. I think that's so important. So that was really cool. That's just a nod to you. Man, the the whole thing that's so weird about that dynamic was for so long, I mean, let's be let's be really cut and dried. Like people can talk about how they have purpose behind their business. Like, le- like l- there's two things that are measurable in this world, time and money. Yeah. You can't measure love. You can't measure effort. You can't measure really anything else except time and you money. You can feel it, but right. to, to properly measure it. Is- right. And so with time, we can't change time. So if the only thing that we as humans can change is money, that's going to be the thing that we obsess over more than anything. Right. It's an interesting way to look at it. So, so like if we really strip away all the emotion, business is about, are you, making money? Are you losing money? And it wasn't until I started working with this band where I kind of was able to enter that extra dimension of there's a happiness quotient. There's a satisfaction index that I previously wasn't able to tap into Yeah, because it was like, I man, I remember their first, the first ever headline show that these guys ever did was, um, Georgia theater. It was this weird, like charity thing that reached out and, it was a Tuesday night in Athens, Georgia. We'd never headlined and we sold 650 tickets. And I remember like being in there and I was like, like it was the chills that I get even to this day thinking about it was like, Oh, okay. Well, this is, this is worth doing. That's you know what I mean? Like, like it was, you know, it's not quantifiable. It's just this feeling. Yeah. But okay. So like, that's awesome. And it's so cool that you felt that. And that's so crazy that it took losing somebody in your family but wow, like yeah. that, all of those events coming together with the absolute perfect band yep. and your network is so nuts. And I, I don't know, like, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to explain that, but those moments in life, those decisions, those pivotal things, I'm just obsessed with. I think they're so important and everybody gets to them in different ways, but hearing about them, like, I feel like that, like inspires people to live a meaningful life. And I knew there was something about you. I knew <laughs> that there was like a, why does this guy have the conviction that he does? Like, what is that? So hearing yeah. this, I'm like, oh yeah. So the other thing is if we rewind to the third tour, their headliner, Yep. that's uh, in fourth or, tour sorry. was their headliner. Sorry. Third, third okay. tour has been Rector. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Okay. Fourth tour. Yep. First headliner. Earlier this year. Yes. That's an important one because that's where you came on my radar because my mentor in music, my fucking dude, Johnny Minardi, (laughs) the man, the man 
hits me up and I was already a fan because uh, our mutual friend Fish showed me Daphne Blue when it came Shout out. out. Mike Fishkin. Mike fucking Fishkin. So I had known the band and Johnny's like, yo, do you want to go see this band, Band Camino with me tonight? And I was like, fuck yeah, I love that band. And he's like, wait, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, they're sick. So we go and it, it's this it's this feeling and this show where it's at Moroccan Lounge in L.A., mm-hmm. which there can be some fucking punts of shows there. Like, well, that was the smallest venue on the tour, too. Oh, wow. Because we, we weren't able to, like, well, you're finished what you're saying. Okay. Sorry. So, like, I've seen some sad shows there. <laughs> so I'm ready for, like, I'm like, I like these songs. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, let's go. And we show up and, like, band goes on and it's oddly lit like it's mm-hmm. it's fuck yourself lit. especially for an la show yeah because la can also be kind of too cool for like young new bands and we're there in the back band goes on and the crowd's like losing it and we kind of look at each other and we're like all right and like they, they keep playing and they're like fans are singing every word like losing their minds and we're like all right <laughs> and it, it just progressively throughout the night it's this like how what how is band camino like low-key the biggest band out there (laughs) and it's this feeling this energy where we just felt something and johnny's telling me about you that's where you're on my radar because he's telling me he's like yeah their manager like he doesn't manage any other bands yeah like he's just this psycho that sold real estate and then changed everything (laughs) but like he's just telling me about a dude that like he was telling me just your conviction and like how hard you go for this band and i was like in my head as a manager i was like I'm fucking up. Like I hearing nah. about that, I was like, damn, like I need to step it up. But I was just interested. A couple nights or a couple days go by and clearly something resonated with him too. Cause he's like, I think I have to sign this band. And we're talking back and forth. And like, he, he was explaining to me, he's like, I might be a little late on this. I know a lot of other labels are interested, whatever. And it's just that, like that back and forth and his yep. conviction. And he felt something so special. And I think that there's a nod to you because you really added that value to the band and that like y- you were able to finagle this business and add this demand and whatever that was. And fast forward the story, you guys end up signing with him on Electra. Yep. It's incredible. It's the perfect fit. Yep. Um, but I just remember that night so well, and I remember being so intrigued by you. So it's a full circle moment for me to sit down and be able to pick your brain and hear all these things. Because from that night, seeing that energy and seeing that it was a real band and seeing the way you navigated business and worked with him, I was like, fuck, this guy's real. Thanks, man. Yeah, th- that. so that particular time in the band's history was really interesting, too. Because what really was... So we had been talking, uh, I'll leave them nameless, but we'd been talking with several labels and we already had major offers, major label offers on the table. Yeah. And it just never felt right. Uh, for me, this band, the guys in that band are so, um, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me to get to watch it, man. It's, it's, you know, the coolest thing about working with this band is, I get to manage my favorite band, which is really rare and something that I will never take for granted. And every night that I, you know, I'm in a bunk sleeping next to these guys, two feet from them. And I'm like, you know, there, there's so many moments where I could take it for granted and, and just kind of forget where I am, but I never do. Like I get to manage my favorite band and be a part of it, which is so fulfilling. But what also comes with that is, the protection that I'll 
kind of put forward, it's it's seriously like a mama bear with their cubs, man. Like, and so when certain labels were wanting to get involved, I was just like, I, I looked at this one guy, I looked at the president of the label, and I was like, I think you're gonna fuck this band up. And this is a very high powered guy, and he's he's worth a lot, and he is the president of a major label, and and I was like, I think you'll a and r it to death. And I think you'll get in the way of what I'm wanting to do and what the band's wanting to do. And, and I think that it'll be a mess. And I think maybe because of my real estate background or whatever, I I've never really cared about the hierarchy of the music business. That's kind of what was going through my head is like, you're managing one band. Yeah. You're deep in this. Like it can be very intimidating to meet with these labels and they can promise these crazy things. So to have the grit, well, to I think say that is very, I, th- I think because I have the other business and because this one isn't what's feeding me, mm-hmm. I have an, uh, that that's helpful. It's uh it's fuck you money. It gives it, you the ability well, to walk away. I or, definitely don't have fuck you money, but it's, it's, I have a, another job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I, so I was just like, I'm sorry. Like I care for this band so much. I just don't think this makes sense. So to a lot of these labels that just meant their offer wasn't high enough. So they kept coming back with more money and yeah. more money and more money and better terms. And so minority came over to me at the LA show and he was like, Hey, how late am I? And I was like, very. And he's like, shit. You think I have any chance? I was like, Johnny, look, I want to do this with, with you. Like I'm openly telling you, I want to do this. The with same you. way the band wanted you to manage. Them. Right. I was like, I want the band doesn't want to do this with the offers we have on the table. Yeah. So yeah, you're late only because we're reaching a critical mass where for me, I, I don't think every type of music needs a label. Mm-hmm. Like I think what Steve Bursky has done with Lauf is really impressive and really inspiring. Yeah. Great uh, example. That is not this breaking a rock band nowadays. You need a full ass radio team. It's not hard to get kids in Omaha, Nebraska, to listen to Lauv, right? It's very digestible. It's very simple. It's very like you put it on a playlist. Getting kids in 2019 to listen and care about a rock band is tough. Mm-hmm. It's very tough. That's true. Like, and especially when we we made a very pointed effort to never touch Warp Tour world. Mm, yeah. So if you're trying to be in a rock band and not be around Warp Tour, man, you are stacking the deck against yourself yeah, who really are you heavily. Touring with what are your right. resources? So I was always like, we have to have really good distro and really good radio, and that's it. We don't need a label to make good records. Like, and so interesting. And so I told Johnny, I was like, look, if as long as you'll stay out of our way and let us make the great records, like that we know we can do. Mm -hmm. And Johnny's like, dude, that's all I want to do. Tap me in when you need me. Yeah. And he was like, I want to bring Greg and Mike. So Greg Nadell and Mike Eastland are the co-presidents of Electric Music Group, which has Electric Records, Roadrunner, which has Slipknot and Corn and Fever Three 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 and all that. And then they have Fueled by Ramen, which right. Paramore, Panic, 21 Pilots, huge. Legendary. <clears throat> He's like, I want Greg and Mike to come out to a show. And I was like, well, you got about four days. Because <laughs> LA was, we did LA, Phoenix, yeah. Houston, Austin, Dallas. I was like, you got, he texted me uh, in Phoenix. And he was like, this is when I want to bring March? him out. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's like, he's like, when, when can I bring him out? And I was like, this is it. We were supposed to go to South by Southwest together. And he's like, Hey bud, I'm real sorry. I can't <laughs> go. I need to go do something. Yeah. I remember the other side of it. I remember how serious he was. So hearing your side is fucking incredible. Yeah. And so I got a call from, from 
it was one day I was in, um, where was I? I was in Phoenix. I went to a gym in Phoenix and I was just like on a treadmill soccer mom in it. And I got a call from this New York area code and he's like, Hey James, this is Greg Nadell. And I was like, Hey, what's up, Greg? And he's like, Mike Eastland's on the line too. And I'm like, Oh shit, this is, and in my head, I'm like, this is the two presidents of the label. What is this? And then Johnny's like, yay, yo, Johnny's here too. And I was like, oh, what's up, guys? And they were like, yeah, so we're going to fly in tomorrow and come to the Houston show. And I was like, all right. I was like, why don't you come to Dallas instead, knowing that Dallas is our best market. Houston sucks for us. And I mean, they were all sold out, but I just knew that Dallas. And yeah. they're like, yeah, we'll look at it. But they couldn't do Dallas. They came to Houston. Worst show of the tour. Fuck. Like, Spencer's keyboard, the power supply fails on song two. Fuck. Uh Somebody pulled the power supply to Jeff's uh, pedal board on like halfway through the set. Their ears go out. Like, dude, literally Jeff broke two strings. Just hell show. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. It was the last night of the tour. It was such a bad note to end on. No. And I was watching the show with Greg and and Johnny. And I remember I just left and I went to the green room because I was like, because it was heartbreaking for the guys. Like, like you could tell too. After like song three, their energy was just so thrown. Yeah. And now, after you do enough reps, you know, at this point, you could probably shoot Jeff in the foot and he would be fine. Right. But back then, it's their first I mean, headliner. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there's, it's very easy to throw a young band. And um, Greg was like, he's like, yeah, it was great. I was like, Greg, shut up. No, it wasn't. And he's like, mm, it wasn't great. <laughs> he's like, it was fine though. And I was like, all right. And so, that night in the green room, we were like, well, and I was like, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I think you blew it. Like, I really, I think you did. And that's okay because we have these other offers, but I think, I think Electra is not an option for us anymore. Just to be totally honest. Damn. Shouts to you for being real. I really like that. <laughs> well, I mean, they, the truth is like the guys in that band are, they're all very mature and they're all very, they want to know the full truth. Yeah. If I didn't give them the full truth, I'd have a problem. Yeah. Some artists don't want the full truth. Right. Yeah, they some very much can't. do. Yeah. Cool. Um, and and they each of them disseminates it um in a different way. But anyway, so it was like two days later, Nadell calls me again. He's like, Hey, Houston was trash, but I'm <laughs> still interested. And I was like, All right. And I was like, Well, I'm just letting you know, we're about two hours away from signing this other deal. And this isn't a ploy, but like, if you're being serious, I'm going to punt, but I'm just letting you know, you're probably going to kill this other deal. Use this information however you will. If you actually try to kill this other deal and then you don't have any intention of signing us, you have to live with that. Wow. So just tell me right now is, are you just trying to take us off the table so that you're not going up against somebody or are you actually want to do this? And he's like, I actually want to do this. So then Minardi calls me and he's like, hey, we have flights for you guys. See you in the morning. Wow. So I call the boys. We've been home for like 48 hours. I call the boys. I'm like, we're going to New York. I go up there. It's all great. Yeah. Johnny's flown in. Yeah. And it was just, it was just the right fit. And, um, you know, you kind of have the poker face a little bit about like, oh, we'll hold off. And then we're on the way to the airport and Mike Easterlin calls me. And I hope our, I hope the band's attorney isn't listening to this because Jeff wore a is his name. He was not happy with me, but, uh, Easterling calls me and he's like, Hey, let's, let's just finalize this. What do you want? And I was like, just have Margo, which is the electric attorney. I'm like, have Margo call Jeff and the, the attorneys. Do it. He's like, no, 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 fuck that. Let's just do it right now. He's like, you and me, like what, like what, what do you want? 
And I was like, no, because if I tell you this, you're just going to gouge us on the back end anyway. You're a label. And he's like, look, have I lied to you yet? And I was like, no. And he's like, I'm not going to. Just tell me what you want. And so we just were on the phone, bang it out right there at the airport. The attorney calls me like an hour later. He's like, what did I fucking say? What did I fucking tell you to do? Yeah. Don't do that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that's like, bad etiquette. Like, that's like, not the typical way to negotiate. I was like, it, I'm sorry. I was like, I thought we had an opportunity. And he's like, yeah, well, we got it done. So whatever. Yeah. And so it happened. And then here we are. Wow. Yeah. The minority minority effect was definitely the 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 biggest part of the Electra deal was everybody from the top down, executive structure, every single person, our product managers, the merch people, the touring people. And but it all really started with with minority. And then there's another person that's really important, Katarina Nazer, who's Greg Nadell's assistant. Do you oh, know Katarina? I've only heard tales of high praise. So I, I hope I hope Katarina's listening to this. Um if I tell her to, I bet she will. But so Katarina was She's Nadell's assistant. Yeah. Very young. Yeah. She came up to me at the New York show. I didn't know her. And she's like, hey, you don't know me. My name's Katarina, but I think this band's fucking great. And I'm going to do everything <laughs> I can to get it signed. And she sent this email. And then after the LA show, apparently Johnny went back in that email thread. And he was like, I saw it tonight. Everything Katarina said is right. Oh. So even though I give Johnny credit for signing it, I give Katarina credit for first. Katarina the was the first champion that yeah, was just like, yeah, Let's she was go. on it, man. She was on it. That's so, and like, you know, what's funny is like, you talk about like how like your attorney would kill you and all that, but the lesson and why I'm so fucking stoked to hear this story is all I want to do is talk about these kinds of people, this kind of passion on this podcast, right? Sure. And the fact that a band like this and a manager like you, because I didn't know this side. I only knew the Electra side. I only knew the sure. Johnny side. But when the right people link up, it is the best story. And That's I know That's been that everything side, with this band, man. Right? Yeah. And just hearing that and like the way you negotiated the deal, it's like traditionally that couldn't work. Well, and I don't want to say that I negotiated the whole deal. Sure. Our, our attorney was still the biggest part of that you're right I, you know? you're right yeah but like the the way that things like that happen and like when people that are so passionate and actually care about artists can come to an understanding and like you know it just felt right and like you could do things like that and you they would fly around like people don't do that like the way that they yeah. flew around and flew the band and like just actually caring about music and and empowering that in this day and age i feel like is a rare story yeah. so to hear it happen on such a major level and now to to fast forward to they're on their second headliner yeah and they're you're selling out you sold two nights of the l ray out yep. on your second ever headliner and like across the board the only show that didn't sell out was uh fucking minnesota yeah la we went from Moroccan Lounge, which was two, I think it's 250. Yeah. 275 cap. And then we're doing 1,600 tickets at El Rey in six months. It's kind of wild growth. <laughs> and it's it's like there's something so cool about that. And I think that, that that's proof that a good product and a band that cares still holds up. Because they the band hasn't even had that much like crazy Spotify playlist love or anything like that. It's organic. It's real. The plays are coming from fans and people are showing up. Because it's good music. The guys, that's refreshing to see. You know, the, the guys in the band, uh, the part that I just love about getting to watch them do what they want to do is, um, you know, yeah, you always have, you always have like the internal questions about like which song is going to be the one that, that does it, yeah. right? Like 
at different times, we've all thought, thought a lot of different songs could do it. The thing that's really fun is everybody in the band really believes in every song that we get to do. Yeah. Um, and so whenever, whenever a song is put out, it's put out with full intention. Um, and everybody, everybody in that band, you know, of course you always have favorites, but it's so fun because what they're doing is real and it's connecting and nobody really tries to sandbag anybody else. Like every it's, it really is a all hands on deck, all for one mentality. There's no bad attitudes and dealing with a band that can be the biggest, I mean, you know, like dealing with a band is the most difficult thing you can do in your entire life. Yeah. It's dealing with a bunch of different people that all have different opinions, different egos and different ability levels, which is something we don't talk about enough and different musicianship levels. And then you have, you know, this guy over here that has the strongest opinions, but maybe is the least talented. Like it's really nice because in this band, there's none of that. Like all four of them all wrote different songs on the record. Like there's no two songs on, uh, on the new record that is the exact same writer. Right. Composition. Like it's different writers on every song. Yeah. It's all about best song wins. What's advancing the cause for the, for what we're doing. What is the best possible song? How do I treat the song the best? How do we, you know, it's just, it's, it's really cool to get to see, especially a, a band that, of guys that have never done this already behave like such pros. Right. And like, like, like to literally come from playing at a wings and beer spot. Yep. Which they still go to all the time. Incredible. When they're in Memphis. They live in Nashville now. But like that, that's really cool. And I love hearing that story. So to come back a little bit to you, because we've told the story of how we're here now. Again, though, since that day at Moroccan Lounge, you stood out to me as an outlier of a manager. A lot of managers operate in a very standard way and view things. And like, you know, there's almost like this etiquette that people learn along the way. And in the best way, you don't have that. And you (laughs) view things very differently. And you view things of more just like, here's a problem. What's our solution? And you don't follow a conventional method at all times to get there. And to that point, you're on tour with the band right now. Yeah. That's very rare. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, so when it started out, I wanted to be on the road because there's just something that gets lost between an Excel spreadsheet of ticket counts and actually being in the room. Yeah. For instance, this whole tour is sold out. I could very easily tell you because I was in the room on paper. Yeah. Everything except Minneapolis is sold out. Yeah. If you were in the room for all of them, you're grabbing something that you can't put into a spreadsheet, right? And that's not necessarily a binary thing. This crowd was hyped up and this one wasn't. It There's nuances. Like this crowd was excited from the first song and they didn't react to Know Me in Black and White. So this is clearly not a crowd that likes ballads. This is a crowd that likes energy songs, right? Last night was San Francisco. Trash market for us. It always sells out. Crowd was so dead. Everybody was so demoralized. Probably the biggest sing-along for Black and White, though, which is like the the quietest ballad type thing. It is a sing-along song, but it's a ballad. Yeah. That was bizarre to me. It was a much older fan base. I was standing there with some radio people, which is another reason why I like to be on the road. I want to know everybody that I can in that market, whether it be the venue owner, promoter, you know, radio person. But I was like, I was walking around last night and I was like, 
I walked right up to the barricade. Then I actually walked through all the people and I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. This is a bunch of 30 year olds, which is bizarre for us. What do you do with that information? Do you catalog you write down? Yeah. A so I keep, I keep notes of everything. Um, you know, I, I'd like to say the easiest ones to, rem- or the most important things I feel like you don't have to catalog because you just remember. Yeah. Like every time we've gone to Salt Lake city, it's, insane it's just lit. like you don't have to yeah. write it down like yeah. that's it, salt lake in city your notebook, is, salt lake city lit. yeah it's cool. just insane dude like and dallas like dallas atlanta are our two they will like we haven't played dallas and atlanta yet those without question will be the craziest crowds the biggest merch numbers so when it when it started out though with me on the road it was with the band didn't have a tour manager the band didn't have X, Y, and Z. Like I built our monitoring, like our inner monitor and playback system, I built in my living room. And that comes from you back in the day from sixth yeah. grade. Like yeah. you have these fundamental skills. Yeah. So I, I, I built, like, I remember I went and bought the ears rack before the night game tour. Cause I was like, you guys have got to get off of wedges. Cause these stages are weird and you're not gonna be able to hear shit. Yeah, of course there's the mentality of, Oh, you should make them cut their teeth on wedges, whatever. But I always viewed it as every show is, it's like a garden, right? And every time that you're in front of people, whether they're there for you or not, you can choose to fertilize and water the garden, Mm -hmm. or you can choose to say, well, I hope it's okay. And you can come back later. And so for me, I was like very early on, I was like, and I was doing this in my own cash. I was just like, we have to do this. And so we put them on ears. I built the system, whatever. So then we did front of house. Um, We brought one of their best friends from Memphis, moved him to Nashville. I I called my friend Taylor Bray, who was front of house for Dan and Shay. And I was like, you got to teach this guy. And so we, me and Taylor and Drew built this whole system. And, and so it was, it was when I first started out being on the road with them, it was like, it was all hands on deck, everybody to do everything. At this point, we now have a, a full-time tour manager. We have front of house, we have an LD, we have all these pieces. Um, but I just want to be there to see every individual crowd and in every step. Cause there's just things that get lost, you know? Um, you know, I, I've thought about this. Last tour, the Minneapolis show, I wasn't there. Maybe if I'd been there, I would have seen this coming that we weren't going to sell this one out. Whoa! I don't know. I'm that's that's probably me being a little bit too cerebral about it, but I don't know. Interesting. And and maybe I'm going too meta here, but like you were on the road, mm-hmm. Minneapolis. So then at this point, I was what not you, on the road for this Minneapolis either. Oh, you weren't. Funny enough. Oh fuck! I was going to say like, what do you do to then fix that? <laughs> well, I mean, the Minneapolis one was just, I mean, whatever. Like, we're sitting here bitching about not I know, we're missing 100 tickets. tickets, like, tickets it's right? fine. It's not it was, like an L. And the guy said the show was great. Yeah. So, like, they, they were like, yeah, it was honestly one of the better crowds. So, I mean, that doesn't matter. Like, really, when we're talking about solids, that's literally just, like, this weird... It's the sweet brag factor. Yeah, it's this dick measuring contest that people in, in the music business get excited about. But it doesn't really matter. Like, cool. Yeah. You sold out a lot of shows. Um, I, I guess should... the better question is like, you're, you're on the road, you're experiencing it. What are your thoughts? Like, so you're seeing all this firsthand. What are you then inspired to go do? How do you then take that and go bigger with it? Um, so I always have tried to view my position as how do I enable the overall function of everything to improve? Whether that be is, is our Guitar tech, does he not have everything that he needs to win tonight? There's been a lot of things on this tour where it's been like, yep, he definitely needs this, 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 and this. Our lighting design, how does that change next tour? You know, we're, there's just a lot of different moving parts 
where, and truthfully, there's going to be a lot of people that, that have different opinions on this that are like, oh, well, you're just inexperienced and you need a, a crew and you need all these people. That's fine. Like, you're probably right. The truth is, could I gather a lot more time for me to be at home with my wife and X, Y, and Z if I outsourced all this? Yeah, I could. But like, I also am a believer. I'm never going to ask my guys to do something that I'm not willing to do. So like, you know, these formative years when it is all hands on deck, I mean, you'll, you'll see the show tomorrow. It is a shitload of production for this level tour. Like we're our trailer, our trailer was a thousand pounds over on weight. Fuck. And they were like, like our bus driver was like, how did you even fit that in there? And we were a thousand pounds over. So we had to take stuff and put it in the belly of the bus. So it's like, imagine having to lift road cases and put them in a bay of a bus. It sucks because your back has bent the whole time. Yeah. But like, that's the only way we can pull the show off. But so for, you know, for this tour, especially it's just, it's, it's really, there's a lot going on. It's really heavy. Um, what was your exact question on that? I'm sorry. The, I just the question is just like, you're on the road, you're experiencing it. Where do you take that then? Oh, and like, yeah. It so, so bigger. like the, for instance, the lighting thing, like yeah. uh, we wanted from the beginning, we were like, this needs to be a spectacle. Yeah. Like this is going to be our first time ever having an LD. Yeah. We're not just going to just have an LD. It's going to be something to, to actually write home about. Yeah. Um, you know, so we've already myself and and my buddy Tyler Shepard, who's the LD for Twenty One Pilots, he's the one that designed the show with us. See, this comes back um, though to you having that network. Like, look at you giving them. You're saying like having the right tools to succeed. That's incredible, man. I just talk a lot, <laughs> but like <laughs> me, me and like Tyler, and then our our LD Alec. Like, we've already started talking about like, oh, cool. Like, oh, so on next tour, what if we put trusses in the back of the room? And everybody's like, why would you do that? And it's like, I don't know. It'd be more in immersive no like well it's we're gonna have to carry probably 600 pounds of cable just to get it in the back of the room because the next tour is going to be significantly bigger rooms and it's like yeah i don't know so it's just i don't know man it's it's always about like how do we improve what we're doing or how do we make it bigger how do we make it better how do we do this you know whatever and whenever like for instance the reason i wasn't in minneapolis you know yeah i'll fly home and we had to get some stuff taken care of on the next tour that we're doing in the spring which i can't divulge yet I'll tell you when we're done recording. Um, but so I'll fly home for things like that. But most of the time I like to try to be on the road as much as possible just to kind of make sure that, you know, that, that there's nothing that I can do to help improve. But I mean, right now it's all hands on deck. Like when you see the show tomorrow, that's what I was talking about earlier. Shit. Uh, when you see the show tomorrow and you see all the lighting, as soon as you guys are out of the room, the band is on stage with us helping strike lights. Fuck, that's I mean, cool. it is, it is because otherwise there's no way we could pull it off. Right. It takes us two hours to pack up. I mean, that's incredible though, right? Like you're taking, you're doing, you're going above and beyond with production to deliver a better show and the band is willing to work to do that. That's cool. Well, the band knows that, I mean, we had a very open conversation about it. It was like, look, we have two options. We can do something small and you guys can go on stage and then go off stage or we can go huge, but we're all going to have to bust ass. And they did it. And they're like, let's do that one. Cool. And it's like, everybody's so invested. Like nobody's made money from this band yet. Wow. I'm not making money on this band. Right. Like just, it's all about long game. That's, that's incredible. So that leads to my next question of, well, I have two, but the first that I'm going to start with is you're listening to this and you want to be a manager. Yeah. What, what is your advice? What are the successful pieces? How do you think the way you think and have that different view? What do you tell to a young aspiring manager to do things the right way or how? Man, 
it's so it's so interesting because in in a lot of ways since I wasn't looking for it, since it kind of just came across my desk in a really weird, bizarre fashion, yeah. it's tough for me to like put that into words. Right. Um, cause I feel like if I were like, Hey, I like, I couldn't do this again. If I were just like, Hey, I want to get into management today. Like, I feel like I don't know if first of all, if the guys in this band would have attached to somebody like that. Actually, I can tell you for a fact they wouldn't have. Interesting. They were, they were really smart in the position of, they knew they had something. They just didn't know how to really go to the next level. But they, you could tell from the minute that I met them, they knew that they had something. Um, and they weren't arrogant about it, but they were just... And they, I wouldn't even say they were really confident about it even. They just knew that there was something there. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess this, the simplest way I could say it is, you know, if you find something that you're so convicted in that you're you know, you feel as invested in it as the guys on stage. I mean, that would probably be like, I can't imagine being detached or dispassionate about this band. Right. Like so it's, it's almost like a point of authenticity. It's yeah. Like, it's, it's when, when things are really good for this band, uh, which thankfully we're, we're very fortunate, you know, in the last year is it's been mostly good, but it's like, we all, get excited and we all hurt together. And it's like, in a lot of ways, um, I don't know, man. It's like, it's like, it's one cohesive unit of all these people. And so, I mean, I guess my advice would be, uh, you know, find something that you are so convicted in that it is literally the only thing that is in your head. Cause like at this point, I, I still have my other company that we talked about at home and, and I, I love that business, but it's like, thankfully my wife manages most of that now. Oh, sick. Yeah. And, um, and I still, you know, get, get to go home and, and do work for that too. But it's like the, the excitement and the passion that I have for this band, it, it trumps everything. And so I'm really fortunate that I get to do that. I mean, I think my takeaway there is just like, if you're looking to manage, make sure you're managing something you really believe in. Yeah. Cause if you don't, the artist will feel it and then they'll be less confident in what they're writing and what they're performing. Their brain is messed up. I mean, you've seen so many bands that are like this, right? Dude, I mean, it's yeah. like, like even really talented guys totally, or girls like that are, that are really, 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 they, maybe they do have what it takes, but I think this may go back honestly a little bit to my mentor, Jim Caden, honestly, uh, you know, the guy who just said, you want a company? I'll help you set it up for free. And I was like, you're crazy. And he's like, no, just do it. Like this band, I remember when we, when we routed the first tour and we had upgraded so many rooms because we only did them in like 200 cap rooms. And then we were like, yeah, we've got to upgrade it to a six. And they like, didn't want to do it. They're like, this is crazy. And I'm like, and this is a smaller scale thing, but it's just like, no, 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 you can do it. Like, let's just do it. And then it's like, I don't know if we can write the songs that we need for X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, 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 you can. Like, it's it's such a mental thing. It's like, it's like a Yoda thing, dude. You just have to tell yourself, I'm going to do it. That's huge. And then that leads to my other question, which is the other side of that, is if there's a band listening to this, if there's artists listening to this that relate to band Camino, where they're like, we're a rock band in 2019. We believe in our product, but... God, is this hard to do? 
What do you tell a band that's looking to get the right attention, the right exposure and link with the right team? So I'm really brutal about this type of question because Please do. As, as you heard from earlier, my first passion is songwriters. Yeah. Um, you know, all my, like I'm in this, this group chat with 16 of my best friends in Nashville. It's called group chat records. It's really childish. <laughs> uh, we like, dude, we like take out ads and like the Titans program and shit. And it's literally, it doesn't even have a website or a call to action. It's just a picture of us. Like, Holy we, shit. Whenever one of us, like there was a point you have executed the joke fully. Oh dude. It's so, it's such a joke, but like, those are my friends. So my, my history comes from songwriters. I still firmly believe songwriters are more important than, than anything. Um, I think songs are more important than artists. They're more important than the writers that write them. They're more important than you and me. Songs are what really matter. And so I think if, if I were a band and I'm like, oh, I think I have what it takes. The truth is you got to be really, really, really self-aware. If, if your songs sound like shit that should be on the Ernie Ball warp stage, they're going to stay there. Like, and it sucks because a lot of times you get really pigeonholed into this is the way this is the way our band sounds, and then it's it's almost impossible to dig yourself out of that. And so I I don't know I mean I, I think of course the basic kind of laundry list of items you have to check off like are you know are we practiced are we competent musicians but really taking that out of it. Cause we're going to pretend like if this is a band that's actually, let's say worth 150 tickets in their hometown, they're at least competent as players. The real thing is, are you self-aware enough to know what's going to work? Cause that's really what it comes down to. Like the honest truth is Ed Sheeran is not the world's best singer by any stretch. Ed Sheeran is so self-aware and aware of what the market is ready to consume that it's not even a game. He, can do whatever he wants. It's the same like anything else. Like Wayne Gretzky was the most dominant hockey player ever. Like people can talk about LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan in basketball, but the truth is there's never been somebody in the sport of basketball that was significantly better than everybody else. If you're a hockey guy, you look at the stats, there's everybody else. And then there's Wayne Gretzky who is far and away. Nobody will ever touch him. Right. But the thing was, if you watch Gretzky as a player, he wasn't the fastest guy. He was not big. He didn't have the fastest shot. There was a guy named Al McInnes who was on his team that had the fastest shot like five years in a row in the all-star competition. But Gretzky had this mentality and he had the awareness to understand how to win the game. It wasn't about I'm the biggest, I'm the strongest, I'm the fastest. He just was aware of how the game worked. So I think that that's really helpful for artists. Like you can be, you know, I think Shay Mooney from Dan and Shay is the best singer in the world. I think he's he's a monster. If you listen to him in the room, he's a beast. But like I was in the bus the other day talking about this to Spencer, who's one of the singers in Make Camino. Spencer's like, dude, Shay's incredible. I think he probably is the best in pop, culturally relevant music. He's like, but he's not the best singer in the world. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, dude, listen to any gospel person in a black church in the Southeast. And I'm like, yeah, but that's it. Like you can have the nuts and bolts and be really good, but you if you can't, put it together and build something. Yeah. Cool. Have fun at your house. Right. So. Dude, that was incredible. That was a great answer. That was <laughs> huge. I mean, that to me, like that does it like my last thing. Did I miss anything? Is there anything important along this story? Is there anything else that you wanted to say? Are there I'm any sorry. I talk too much. No, no, dude. <laughs> like I, 
I loved this. This was a really fun one for me. Yeah, dude. Is there anything else? Like, did I, what's next for Camino? Like, what's the shout out? We will be, uh, we will be here in about a month. We will be announcing a, uh, very big support run. And then next fall, you can expect the band's debut full length. Cool. With an accompanying worldwide tour. Fuck yeah. And that will be, that one is going to be a lot of fun. The world tour is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but as a fan, you better believe you're going to experience a great show. Dude, that's that's the thing, man. Like, we've, <laughs> we've always said, like, you know, we want to we want to be known for that massive level, uh, an immersive experience, something that's really worth spending your money for. Um, even if that means the, the band as an entity doesn't make much, uh, we'll, we'll get there. You know, like we're not really worried about it. Like I love that this, mentality though. Honestly. This structure, this, this band is going to be around for a long time. It's not going to be, we're gone in two years. Yeah. So there'll be time to make that later. Right now let's, let's, uh, let's build something cool and give people a cool show. <laughs> I fucking love that. I absolutely love that. I feel like that's a great place to leave it. Yeah, man. Dude. Thank you so much for this. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. I I love being able to sit down and do one where I really feel like people listening will take something away from it. And I feel like that's exactly what this was. Dude, I really appreciate that, man. Thank you for all the kind words. And um, I guess if I could leave everybody with everything uh, that's in my head, thank you to Johnny Minardi and thank you to everybody at Electra. Megan Carey and Greg Nadell and Mike Eastland and Katarina, all those people. But thank you to the band Camino. The guys in that band have been the absolute best people that I've ever gotten to work with. And it's inspiring every day. I back that so hard. Cool. That's it. Boom.